0: Hello, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. Wow, we sit on the precipice of Thanksgiving, a break I think we all need. And although there's much to be glum about, um, there's much to be thankful for as well. After all, the government did not shut down. After all, we have President Biden, who is cogent, skilled, resourceful, leading our country during a time of two raging, complex wars. We have an economy that has really returned to vigor much faster than any other economy and much faster than many of the so-called experts imagine. And I think it is a time in which Democrats understand their own power. We saw earlier this month that Democrats over and over again Reject the Maca vision, reject the craziness, reject the extremism, reject the Dobbs view of subjugating women. And oh, that is tremendously positive. And I stress over and over again to my listeners, to my readers, that ingesting too much media, on social media in particular, can be very deleterious, not only to your mental health, but your understanding of what's going on. Um, And there's a lot of nonsense out there. There's a lot of um, kind of displaced anxiety from people who are nervous about the election next year, which is understandable. But it shouldn't blind us to the real successes Democrats have had, the real strength that America has demonstrated, and its ability to sidestep disasters, in part because we have at least one party that is functional, that is responsible, and that is the Democratic Party. It's not that they're without fault. It's not that they get everything right, but they're trying. They try to be in the neighborhood, in the zip code of the truth. They try to stick to the facts. They try to work on actual problems rather than creating problems. They want a robust, complete view of history. They want children to all be respected. These are good things. These are responsible things. And the next thing, I guess, to having two good parties is having at least one good party. Goodness knows where we'd be if we and two parties that were completely um out of the out of whack um but we we at least have one and that's someplace to start and i think it was interesting that just in recent days we heard from Liz Cheney again she was taking to task both the new speaker Mike Johnson for his um really Preposterous views and indifference to the country's fiscal future. And also, really taking it to Senator Mike Lee, who was fanning yet another bizarro January 6th conspiracy theory. And she said to Mike Lee, I know you. You're a lawyer. You know better than this. And it was so delicious because it was a man behind the curtain moment. Um, She understands what a little man he is and that he deep down someplace understands this is all a bunch of hooey. And she's going to call him out on it. And I think that's so refreshing because unfortunately the media doesn't always call out these people the way they should. They simply say, Mike Lee said X, Y, and Z. Others say A, B, and C as opposed to saying Mike Lee, who is a lawyer by trade, came out with a bizarre conspiracy theory which suggests that he either doesn't care or doesn't want to break with the neo-fascist movement that his party now represents. So you wish The press would say that you wish more people would be candid, uh, but I'll take Liz Cheney. She's not a bad one to be forthcoming uh, with uh, and about her former colleagues. And of course, one of the people who served with Liz Cheney knows her well and takes a similar approach, I think, to um, Republicans in debunking them, in calling them out for lies. He has to sit there through hearings. He has to listen to them pontificate, uh, is the congressman from California, Eric Swalwell. And I got a chance to talk to Eric as it was. It was last week. Just before the Democrats were once again going to go in, vote to save the day and keep the government open. And it turned out to be a really interesting, very timely conversation. Welcome to the show, Congressman.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: It's my pleasure. It is absolutely my pleasure. It seems like there's no bottom for Donald Trump and the MAGA group. It is now, they're not trying to hide it. Trump is literally using Hitlerian phrases. Is there any sense among your Republican colleagues that he's gone too far or that they're embarrassed by this or they think that this is a problem for America?
1: No, in fact, the ones I talk to uh, are privately wish casting uh, that he would just go away, uh, but but they're just paralyzed uh, with fear, fear for their own safety, fear for their own electability, uh, and, and then just fear reputationally uh, for what it would mean to them uh, if they were to stand up uh, against him. And, and so that's why uh, we can't count on them. And I, and I think we just have to stay on the same path that we've been on, uh, which is you know to organize and mobilize you know, at the ballot box, uh, you know, to keep beating him. Uh, <laughs> I, I know that's frustrating if you feel like you did that in 18 and you did that in 20 and you did that in 22 and you did that in Virginia and Kentucky and Ohio in 23. Um, but I, 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 it, it is going to be effective. And I, th- I think we have a, the best shot next November to truly uh, bury uh Magaism once and for all.
0: And it's my sense, I've told readers, listeners, um that really the only way to get the Republican Party to change is to have them lose. Because I assume that most of your Republican colleagues don't really buy into this stuff. They're doing it, as you say, because they're so desperate to hold on to their seats.
1: Desperate to hold on to their seats. And as I said, they they look at Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and they think, well, I don't want to live that life. I I don't want to have... All of these death threats from Trump's supporters come at me. I, I don't want, you know, to I mean, Trump and he'll toe the line with his own threats that he makes. And so your life is upended. Uh, both of them are clearly no longer in office. And I, I do think part of this is I serve with too many people who think this is the only job they can get. <laughs> and, and so if that's the mindset, then uh, you're really guarded about, you know, taking any risk that would mean you'd have to get another job. And it's kind of crazy because when I got elected to Congress, I was hoping I was, you know, giving up other, you know, more financially lucrative opportunities, you know, to do a job, you know, for the greater good. Uh, So I don't really want to serve with people who can't get other jobs, uh, but it looks like that's, you know, a good chunk of my colleagues.
0: I am so glad you say this because when readers ask me, well, They could go out and get better jobs. No, who's going to hire, you know, MTG? Who's going to hire these lunatics? They have the best job, the most attention they are ever going to get in their lives. So, of course, they're not going to give that up, you know, willingly. The best way for for me to
1: describe it um, is that I work in pro wrestling. (laughs) And so hear, hear me out here. Yep. And I'll give you just the best example. Uh, during the second impeachment of Donald Trump, after I presented on the Senate floor uh, for the trial, I was on a bathroom break. We were using the Senator's uh, bathroom and was washing my hands. And and right next to me was uh, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, also washing his hands, looked over at me. I'd never met him in person before and put his fist out and said, hey, I'm Ted. And I looked at him like he had three heads because the night before, he was name-checking me on Fox News and, and he had been tweeting at me a number of times in, in the weeks before. And he could tell I was confused. And then he said to me, you know, you guys are doing a hell of a job out there. And, and I was—I I couldn't believe what he was saying. And then I realized, well, we're, we're in the bathroom. Nobody else is around. Um, we're not in the ring. You know, the, the lights and the cameras and the audience are not here. So he can just himself. But when we're in the ring, he has to hit me over the head with a steel chair because the fans, who I call constituents, uh, want that. And the danger of that, um, if you say, well, that's great that at least he doesn't believe it. Well, no, the danger of it is if the fans think that he believes it, then that's what leads them to take out violent acts as they did on January 6th. And so it also, just as a legislator, makes it really hard for me to negotiate or work with anybody when you don't even know what the hell their core set of principles are if it's just, as you said, it's all about fame, fandom, uh, and fantasy.
0: Exactly. The other, um, I guess, a wrestling match that you're in um, constantly are these hearings, um, the so-called investigations. Um, do the Republicans realize they've sort of made fools of themselves, that they haven't gone anywhere? If they are, why do they keep having them? They seem, you know, they go from bad to worse for the Republicans as you guys kind of extract not only information that is exonerating, if you will, to the targets, but that are harmful to the Republicans.
1: Jen, I don't think you're giving them enough credit. I I think by the end of the year, Comer and Jordan are going to be able to prove that Hunter Biden is Joe Biden's son. I, I think that's coming, <laughs> that's right. and we need to be ready for that, that they're exactly. probably going to be able to prove that. Exactly. You know, it, it, look, they don't have uh, an Adam Schiff or a Jamie Raskin on their side. They don't have serious people leading these investigations. And it's, so it's not surprising at all that you know Comer one week would make a big deal that Joe Biden, when he was not president, loaned his brother money and then was repaid the money. And that Comer has done the exact same thing almost to the same amount with his own uh, family member. Um, so again, th- these investigations are not serious. I-, I don't believe they will actually impeach Joe Biden. I-, I actually think this is all to just kind of, you know, put a cloud over him uh, to I- try on both sides, you know, Trump and Biden as we go. Uh, into the election. And I I think they're afraid of bringing those articles of impeachment forward uh, for two reasons. One, that they would not have the votes or worse, if they did have the votes, you know, and it went to the Senate, uh, that you could have probably the largest bipartisan acquittal uh, that you've ever seen. And and so uh, I I do think what you'll end up getting is just like a protracted investigation, as you said, that um, is debunked each week new pieces of evidence.
0: And what about their other stunt, which is to impeach um, the head of Homeland Security, um, Secretary Mayorkas? Um, that got sent back to committee. or Is that going to see the light of day or is that another one of these kind of exercises where it just kind of goes on forever?
1: Well, it, it had a lot of momentum until the border crossings went way down and, and the fentanyl seizures you know, have gone way up, meaning that like CBP is, you know, doing their job to get and, and yeah, do their job. I'm a little concerned though, that, you know, so many Republicans without any formal, you know, impeachment inquiry process were willing to just ad hoc, you know, throw out for the first time, you know, in over a hundred years, a cabinet official, just because they didn't want to be unpopular with the MTG crowd. Right. Um, but uh, again, it, it just shows to me, um a lack of seriousness in what we have to get done. Uh, And every single day, uh, Democrats have shown, you know, we're interested in governing and Republicans are interested uh, in ruling.
0: is, I think it's fair to say, the lowest possible expectation of what these Republicans can do. They can barely keep the government open, and that's only because Democrats keep voting to bail them out. Is there any topic that you can think of where there actually might be a bipartisan constructive deal? Is there something that we can hope that would motivate them that is not off in crazy land?
1: You know, what What unites uh, a lot of us is uh, taking on China and recognizing, you know, just the economic threat uh, that they pose. Um, however, I am now starting to have pause, though, that if China did invade Taiwan, uh, that Republicans would defend Taiwan. Um, it, it just seems to me uh, that if you're soft on Russia. It doesn't make sense to me that you would be tough on China, and so I thought China was always the one uh, that we were united on. And, and now I, I just wonder uh, if they would walk, you know, away uh, from that. But um, no, there's there's not much right now. And, and as I said, they're they're led by you know the lowest common denominator, uh, which is this you know chaotic you know group of Freedom Caucus members who conceived this idea, by the way. Of what they call a laddered continuing resolution, you know, to keep the government open, conceived it, and, and then killed it. <laughs> when the speaker went ahead with it, uh, they are now the ones uh, who have killed it. And we have witnessed something three times. If, if this goes the way I think it's going to go in about uh, a short time from now uh, on the government funding bill, three times we've seen something that has not happened in modern history, which is that the minority party will deliver the majority of the votes on a consequential piece of legislation. You had it on paying our bills to extend the debt ceiling. You had it to avert a government shutdown uh, back at the end of September, and you're gonna have it again uh, to do it and avert a shutdown uh, You know that we're headed into uh, right now
0: this is the reverse of the so-called Hastert rule, where you weren't going to put anything on the floor. Now the rule, I suppose, should be they they can't put anything on the floor that most Democrats won't vote for because their own people certainly won't do it. So it's uh, certainly a perverse kind of uh, turnaround.
1: My other prediction, though, is that they will not throw Johnson out right. uh, for doing this, which if that is the case, uh, what does that say about Kevin McCarthy that Johnson will have just weeks later have done the same thing that McCarthy did, rely on Democratic votes, uh, yet um, Johnson won't be thrown overboard. I I think that shows uh, that in this business, um, it's very much about trust and relationships, and McCarthy didn't have uh, much of either.
0: It it really is kind of shocking in a way. Um, You know, I, I cannot imagine a Democratic caucus, whether it was with speaker pelosi or speaker jeffries that kind of um backbiting that kind of um, personal vendetta it uh i suppose i shouldn't be surprised because that's how these people operate like they're in junior high school with feuds and um clicks but it is pretty remarkable that you could get the job you always wanted in your entire life and nine months later none of the people really want to keep you around um it's It's somewhat shocking. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you brought it up about uh, foreign policy, Ukraine, Israel, uh, Taiwan. There certainly is a segment of the MAGA group that is isolationist, um, that is frankly pro-authoritarian, pro-Putin. Is that the majority of them? Or do you think there's still a majority in the House that if they could vote on it, would approve aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, aid to uh, Taiwan?
1: Well, it's reaching a tipping point. And, and what you're seeing, I think, is kind of this mob mentality where it starts with a small group of them, uh, but uh, through outside groups and, and through you know the validation of, of Donald Trump supporting them, uh, you see other Republican colleagues who wouldn't otherwise support that Become fearful that you know they could lose in a primary, or they'd have Trump's wrath, and so they jump on board. You saw this, by the way, um, right after the 2020 election, uh, when you know Speaker Johnson, you know, art, was the architect of a letter to and a, a, a brief to try and overturn the election, and it had not much momentum and steam. And then all of a sudden, it hit this tipping point, and it had a majority of the Republican members. And the same thing on January 6, uh, where you had a majority of the members, you know, voting, you know, to overturn uh, the election. So I'm I'm fearful we're starting to see that uh, again on Ukraine. One lesson, though, that I I think we can learn um, on Israel, you know, its prime minister, you know, came in, uh, you know, seeking, uh, you know, retaliation against his enemies, uh, seeking to consolidate power, uh, seeking to limit uh, freedom uh, and, and reduce uh, you know, democratic uh, principles. And by doing that, um, it certainly looks like, you know, he took his eye off the ball uh, and an enemy uh, very ruthlessly and brutally, a terrorist group, you know, capitalized on that. And so when I think forward to what could happen in our country if Donald Trump was brought back into power, and knowing how vindictive he is and, and knowing how. Um, you know, just power hungry he is, Uh, if he were to make the same type of effort to consolidate power, punish his enemies, uh, what enemy of America would see that as an opportunity, you know, to uh, capitalize on uh, us being distracted? And and so I I hope that lesson is taken away uh, from, you know, the awful attack uh, that Israel suffered.
0: Absolutely. And I often wonder if um, Putin um, and the Russians, you know, if nothing else, think, hey, we just have to make it like another year and then our guy will be back and everything will be back to normal and we'll get a free pass here.
1: Donald Trump essentially bought Ukraine one more year at least of having to defend uh, itself uh, when he said at a town hall that he would end the conflict within 24 hours mm-hmm. because when Vladimir Putin heard that uh what he uh recognized was uh, two things one he has you know the manpower to just grind it out uh in uh, eastern ukraine uh and buy time for Donald Trump to be elected and, and two uh he uh, has the playbook uh that he ran in 2016 of how to get Donald Trump uh support uh in you know our election and and so he certainly uh, i think Donald Trump uh guaranteed that this conflict will go at least in, into uh you know winter uh 2024.
0: Absolutely. One of the issues that you've been um particularly active on um is guns. And here is a perfect example of the complete disconnect between public opinion, public desire and their representatives. Part of that is the gerrymandering. Part of that is the money in politics. There was a small bill. Um, I don't want to denigrate it because I think anything that the NRA doesn't like is positive. It was a small measure. Um, If Democrats are able to retake the House um, and there is still a Senate, let's say, majority or, or a tie, but certainly not beyond a filibuster. Is there any hope to go forward on uh, a gun measure? Are there other areas in which you think at least Senate Republicans can cooperate with uh, a House majority to pass?
1: Yes, I'm not losing hope. and It's also because, uh, you know, I I see, you know, the Parkland generation uh, really uh, coming of age now in, in realizing the agency that they have. Uh, in all of this, uh, for example, uh, one of the survivors, David Hogg, has now graduated college and has founded an organization to get people elected, uh, at the statewide level who are under, uh, the age of, uh, 25. And, and they just had their first victory, um, in, in the recent Virginia elections. And so, um, they're, they're not going, you know, to give up on this. And they recognize, you know, it was a, a big victory. You know, the Safer Communities Act that was passed um, last year, the first time in 30 years that we made progress, especially around red flag laws uh, on gun safety. And and so it's going to, I think it's going to continue to grow uh, as a top issue uh, that people uh, care about. And and look, when you see a colleague uh, of mine, and so much credit to him, like Jared Golden, who had said uh, he had opposed an assault weapons ban, and then when it came to his community, um, recognized that we needed to do more. I think that just shows that you know we have to you know keep persuading people, and, and so I'm I'm not giving up on it. I'm a father of a six year old, a, a five year old, and a two year old, and the two oldest are already doing uh, mass shooter drills uh, in oh, their classroom. Wow. And uh, my goal uh, is that by the time they're in high school, uh, they're in a much different and, and safer environment. So I, I'm still very very optimistic about this.
0: And it's interesting you should mention. Um David Hogan, young people, although um, I think we're going through a very bad stretch, my sense is that the millennials and Generation Z have their act together to a degree (laughs) to which the boomers and, um, you know, um, other older generations didn't, that they seem to be uniquely engaged, they're technologically savvy, they're certainly concerned about the planet, Um, What do you see when you talk to younger voters, when you talk to college kids? Are they, have they tuned out or are they tuning back in and recognizing, hey, this is the whole shebang here?
1: They want to believe that their participation uh, means something and and makes a difference. And that, I I believe, is is the greatest uh, challenge uh, for us because their participation in 20 and 22 or 18, 20 and 22 at record levels is why we won the House won the White House, kept the House, won the Senate, kept the Senate, um, and will or will not win the White House uh, in 24. I think the mistake that we've made in the past with young people has been to tell them to register to vote and then to go vote. Uh, and, and we didn't do anything in between. And, right. and we're recognizing that it, it has to be a journey to the ballot box. Uh, it can't just be you know, telling them that this is their duty and that journey is, you know, civic engagement of, you know, town squares, town halls, you know, and, and that that's your true agency. Is that because you participated, you you can have expectations of the people uh, who you uh, voted for. One one issue that I have been working on and, and still believe uh, could really make a difference uh, would be to have mobile voting. Yeah. And what I would like to see is to prove me prove to me that we can't do it because. Uh, we have seen in pilot cases in West Virginia and Utah, uh, especially for service members overseas, uh, that they are able to vote uh, on their, you know, mobile devices. Uh, that you can use, you know, encrypted technologies that allow, you know, an audit trail. Uh, you can geo uh, tag uh, or geofence fence uh, the device so that it has to be within a, you know, a, a ballot box or a polling place. There's a lot you can do on the security side, and I think if we could find a way securely, you know, and, and to be able to audit it, um, that would dramatically increase. Uh, participation. And so I'm, I'm not giving up on that. I recognize you want it to be um, bulletproof, but uh, I don't think that means we shouldn't try.
0: Right. All right. Um, California is going to have some interesting politics next year. Um, you have an open Senate seat. Uh, Kevin McCarthy may or may not be there. Um, and you have some House seats not exactly close by to you, but kind of your neck of the woods and the kind of Central Valley and that part of California. Can Democrats pick up some seats there?
1: Yeah, certainly in uh, the Palm Springs area, former federal prosecutor Will Rollins um, is running again uh, and running uh, again on kind of a freedom agenda. Uh, You know, he's running against someone who has voted against, uh, you know, the the freedom agenda you know, to love who you want to love. And Will as a, a, a gay American, um, you know, understands his community, expects that freedom to be protected. He also prosecuted January 6 cases and, and, you know, is running against a party uh, that has, frankly, been anti-democracy. So that that's one race um, that I'm watching uh, with interest. And, and then, uh, frankly, in the Senate race, I'm on Team Schiff. Uh, yep. I, I think whoever wins, you know, will, will be uh, terrific. Um, but uh, it, it is going to be, um, you know, a new chapter in, in California politics with, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi no longer as Speaker. Uh, you know, Senator Feinstein, um, you know, no longer uh, in in the Senate. Uh, but I think it's an opportunity as well for you know a new generation, you know, to step up uh, and lead.
0: Well. That's a good place to leave it then. Thanks so much. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for putting up with your colleagues. I don't know how you keep your sanity. You must go home and scream into a pillow every night.
1: And the easiest thing I do every day, or the hardest thing I do every day, is to put a six year old, five year old, and a two year old um, in a car and off to school and daycare. Uh, after that, everything's easy.
0: There you go. Well, I think dealing with toddlers is the perfect kind of training for your line of work. (laughs) So thank you so much, Congressman. We'll uh, have you back soon. Bye-bye. My
1: pleasure. Thank you.
0: And that was Congressman Swalwell. Well, as we suspect, most of the people on the other side of the aisle from him are not people who are there so much because they're interested in the greater good. What they are interested in is keeping their jobs. And that's why they show no inclination towards independence, towards doing the right thing, towards serving their constituents. It's silly to make those sorts of appeals to people. How can you make an argument to someone who doesn't care whether he is serving the needs of his constituents? All he cares about is keeping his head down low enough so that he can get reelected. And if he has to say ridiculous things, if he has to take votes that are meaningless or that actively work against the interests of his constituency? No problem. Because after all, the most important thing is staying there and staying in office and getting reelected and elected again. And these people have nowhere else to go. Congressman Swalwell is absolutely right. The quality of lawmakers has gotten so low on the Republican side that these are not people who could get prime jobs. It used to be, oh, well, you lose your seat, you go work on K Street, or you get a great job with a law firm. What law firm is going to hire Lauren Boebert? What law firm is going to want someone like Jim Jordan? It's preposterous. So instead, they hang on because this is the only job they have. This is the only way they stay to be important people and get to hobnob with rich people and get people to pay attention to them. Otherwise, they'd go back to being nobodies. Now, I will say it must take a toll on people. And in fact, we've had, I think it's the third Texas, Dallas area congressperson who has said, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. And in fact, the most recent one has decided to go back and run for state Senate. Think about that for a moment. Serving in Congress is so awful, you would rather go back home, serve in the state Senate, which is essentially a part-time job, meets irregularly, than remain and have to put up with the crazies. But who can blame them? Who really would want to trade places with them? So I think it's a challenge for Democrats to keep the really good people there. Because as soon as they have an opportunity to get out, A lot of them do. And in fact, you're seeing, most recently, a slew of people who, frankly, are so good that their talent is wasted in the House. You have people like uh, Abigail Spanberger from Virginia, uh, 7th District. She's not going to run for re-election. She's going to run for governor of Virginia. I think she'll make a, a great candidate. But will the Democrats keep that seat? Will that be um, a blow to the House? Yeah, it it could be. Similarly, Elisa Slotkin in Michigan uh, is going to run for the Michigan Senate. So she's going to escape from the House as well. Now, understand, it's a better job to be in the Senate and have to listen to Ted Cruz all day long than it is to be in the House. That's how bad things are. But she's moving up and moving on as well. So. I do worry that as the good people matriculate up um, and get higher office or do find other jobs because Democrats actually are employable elsewhere, um, that you won't have the Eric Swalwells, you won't have the Adam Schiff's, another congressman who is looking for higher office, um, that you won't have people who are sharp enough to run rings around the Republicans. Uh, And that would be a loss to the country because when you come right down to it, the only thing between complete chaos, complete dysfunction, government shutdown, debt uh, problems, is the Democratic Party. That's the only thing that's keeping us from the wolves' door. And it's the only thing that's keeping America as the preeminent power in the world. So they've got to shore up their base. They've got to put on their tough um you know, game face. Um, they got to ignore some of these polls and some of the whining and grousing about uh, President Biden because the country depends upon them. They better get reelected, and if they're leaving, they better find successors who are going to be able to operate successfully in that horror show of the House of Representatives. So that is our show for today. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. They can listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.